guys. Welcome back to The Culture Journalist. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. So earlier this month, you might have heard the online record store Bandcamp caused quite a stir on the internet when it announced that the company had been sold to Epic Games. That's the North Carolina-based gaming monolith best known as the creator of Fortnite. Two years into a pandemic that has cratered musicians' ability to earn a living, the announcement felt like a stunning about-face from a company that had carved out a reputation as a kind of anti-Spotify, the rare music platform that allowed artists to monetize their work through direct sales as opposed to paltry streaming payouts. Through its popular Bandcamp Fridays initiative, where the company forfeited its already pretty artist-friendly 10 to 15% cut in order to drive more funds to bands who are unable to tour, Bandcamp emerged as something of a lifeline to independent musicians in an otherwise inhospitable creator economy. Although it remains to be seen if the sale will change any of the fundamentals of the way Bandcamp operates, Bandcamp for its part says it will not, musicians reacted to the news as though something had been taken away from them something they believed was theirs. Writer and musician Damon Krukowski, remarking that Epic Games is 40% owned by Chinese tech giant Tencent, had a pretty apt tweet. Did we just lose our independent digital record store? In another tweet, Austin Roby, founder of the musician's cooperative Ampled, pushed that logic of ownership one step further. In 2020, people thought I was being unfair to Bandcamp by critically asking, who owns Bandcamp, he wrote. Well, here's your answer. It's now Epic Games. Bandcamp should belong to the artists that made it. It should be a public utility. Which brings us to a question that we've been chewing on for a long time and that we're going to try to unpack for you today. Is it possible to imagine a world in which the platforms that circumscribe pretty much every aspect of our lives aren't owned by the same handful of mega-rich for-profit behemoths. You know, those companies that have come under fire time and time again for prioritizing shareholder interests and exponential growth over the well-being of users. Is it possible to imagine a world where the tools that form the very infrastructure of our online lives, from the public square of social media to rideshare and vacation rental apps, are collectively owned and governed by the people who use them? Our guest today, James Muldoon, a senior lecturer in political science at the University of Exeter in the UK and head of digital research at the think tank Autonomy, says yes. He's written a fascinating new book called Platform Socialism, How to Reclaim Our Digital Future from Big Tech, and it lays the groundwork for what such a future might look like, from the formation of small-scale alternatives, think local rideshare cooperatives instead of Uber to imagining a world where users could democratically vote on the algorithms that govern platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Whoever controls the platforms controls the future, he writes. The simple proposition of this book is that it should be us. In today's conversation, which we recorded before the Bandcamp News, we go deep with James on why existing proposals for curbing the enormous power and influence of big tech, such as breaking up Facebook, fail to address the root of the problem how even free-to-use platforms extract value from their users, and why we urgently need to widen the Overton window when it comes to imagining what the internet of the future could look like, so we can know which changes to agitate for in the present. You're listening to the free version of The Culture Journalist. 
Just as a reminder, if you sign up for a paid subscription, you'll get access to the full version of every episode, including this one, along with bonus goodies. And as a special bonus for those of you who are listening, Pluto Press, the publisher of James's book Platform Socialism, is offering a special 30% discount on the book just for our listeners. All you need to do is log on to the Pluto Press website and enter the code MULDOON30. That's M-U-L-D-O-O-N-3-0. And now, on to the show. everyone welcome back we are here with our guest james Muldoon. thanks so much for coming on the show thank you for having me so let's start with the big picture what is platform socialism in your definition of the term and what are some key ways that platform socialism differs from the for-profit models that currently circumscribe so much of our online experience so platform socialism Uh, the book I recently published is a project for reinventing the internet and reimagining how digital platforms could operate. So it's about finding alternative ways uh, to set up ownership and governance over platforms, all the platforms that now play such an essential role in, in our daily lives. So we hear a lot about how we can fix Facebook. I'm much more of the opinion that we should just burn it to the ground and, and use different types of services. And so what I'm interested in with this idea of platform socialism is expanding our collective imagination of what might be possible. Because I think to do this, we need to generate an exciting vision for what the world could look like with a better use of technology. I don't think we can always just dig our feet in and say no without offering a kind of positive alternative for how things could be better. And one of the things I've noticed recently is that when you think of all the most transformative visions for what 2030 and beyond will look like, you know, ideas like the metaverse or Web3 or stuff around cryptocurrency, many of them are deeply flawed, but it's not exactly clear what the alternative, more progressive political agenda should be that should take their place. And I think if you look back, every really transformative progressive project Um, when new governments have come to power, when new social movements have have created change, it's always been on the basis of of a real radical reimagining of how society should be organized, an inspiring vision, a really bold agenda. So things like, you know, abolitionism, universal suffrage, racial equality, all these ideas were, were about creating new kinds of common sense for what could be possible. And I think at the moment, it's basically just like a bunch of tech executives and and some of their designers who are deciding how platforms should work. And I really think communities themselves should have a much greater say, both in designing these kinds of products and in sharing in the value that they produce. How did you come to be interested in this topic? Was it at all inspired by feeling the effects of the extractive model of Web2 in your own life or in your own work? Well, I have a YouTube channel 
It's called uh, Political Philosophy, and I do like intro videos to, to figures in the history of political thought. So your, your Machiavellis, your Hobbeses, your Wollstonecrafts, etc. And I dress up as figures, you know, in some of these videos. So it's kind of like my little side project. Sometimes my students say that I remind them of the dean on the TV show Community. He's the guy who's like <laughs> always dressing up in different costumes. Um, I have a lot of millennial references from all the 2000s TV shows I watch, but the channel isn't very big and I don't actually monetize my, my videos, but in making this channel, I started making quite a few friends in the YouTube community, other creators, other people who were spending a lot more of their time on this. So it was kind of like they considered their day job. And one of the things that, that anyone in this creator economy will tell you is how exploitative these big platforms are. So as a YouTube creator, and remember YouTube's owned by Google, right? Most of the profit from the ad revenue is going straight to the platform. And it's just shocking how little these companies actually invest in creators. Most of the kind of investment in new talent is going to very established players. It's going to some of the legacy media networks. Um, and most people end up making the majority of their money from places like Patreon and more direct subscription models. Um, because the terms that the major platforms are offering are so unfavorable. Um, and it really struck me how audacious the kind of offer was from these big platforms, that they're taking zero risk, but they'll happily reap the reward of any creator who does start to attract an audience and get really big. And with mm -hmm. YouTube, like technically their split on ad revenue on videos they get monetized is like a 55-45 model in favor of the platform. But the chances of building a following on the platform are just so slim that it's, it's completely not within the reach of most creators, right? Basically, nobody makes a living on YouTube because even to earn like a minimum wage, and I'm really talking like just enough to scrape by, so something like twelve dollars or $15,000, your channel needs like over a million views a month and you have to be in the top 3.5% of channels. Studies have shown this. And we know that the top channels are completely dominated by legacy media companies like, you know, Comedy Channel and the big news channels. They're the ones that are getting the majority of the views on YouTube. So it's incredibly exploitative. And it really got me thinking more about how to, you know, what's going on and doing some of my own research on, on the digital economy. Yeah, this is something that we see in our own work as culture journalists and music journalists all the time, not just with YouTube, but also notably a platform like Spotify, where musicians are making maybe a fraction of a penny per stream. And this results in smaller musicians not ma making very much money at all. And then the major labels that actually own part of the platform making the greater bulk of the revenue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really just how a lot of these culture platforms are set up, right? Yeah, it is how they're set up. And one thing that interests me about this book is that it offers a solution when people can't really conceive of another alternative because they, they sort of like came out the gate like this. And so people don't even know what to ask for, can't imagine other possibilities. And, and there does seem to be like a growing awareness in society that these platforms like Facebook and Twitter are harmful in some way, especially in the aftermath of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the 2016 election. But you argue that 
issues like data breaches and online misinformation only scratch the surface of the harm. Can you talk about what makes them exploitative in this deeper fundamental way? I think the problem with many of today's digital platforms is that they're set up as, and their primary function is to act as value capture devices. They're designed to appropriate the value creating activities of their users. So they're going to act as an intermediary, as a gatekeeper, and they're going to try and skim a little bit off through fees, subscription models, through ad revenue. Because I think companies began to realize that when it comes to digital services, it's much more profitable to let other people do the work and simply create the digital environment in which other people are are transacting and interacting with each other. So what you began to see a lot of was companies attempting to develop online communities so that they could extract value from them. And just take the example of Facebook's recent rebrand as Meta, right? Then their move into the metaverse. The ambition here is to create this hybrid online offline world that would be entirely corporate owned, that Meta would control, um, and that everything you did in this world could be monetized. So the ultimate goal is to operate the digital infrastructure on which we live our entire lives so that as the service or as the company that owns this, you can seamlessly extract value from people's activities at every point in the system, right? You might charge them a subscription for logging on to a particular season of a game they like. You might charge them for a special type of avatar that they have in the game, maybe items, merch that gets delivered to them. I think it's hard to imagine any of the platforms ever properly reforming or or us being able to fix them, so to speak, because they're all run as profit-driven companies that have a structural incentive to put engagement and growth and constant development above other considerations. They're there to make money for their shareholders. And and when you're operating in these data markets and you need to generate either advertising revenue or create other revenue streams, it's inevitably going to lead you towards the kind of business models that we see today. And I, I just don't see things like breaking up big tech or having a few more regulations on them as going to fix that. I think it's like that the scorpion riding the frog, you know, the scorpion and the frog fable where the scorpion like inevitably stings the frog and they don't know why. And the, the companies keep harming us and we keep asking why. And it's because it's in their nature to do this, not in the sense that like, their CEOs are really unethical or bad people, but for structural reasons, for reasons of political economy, they're under competitive market pressures to make sure the line goes up, to make sure the profits keep increasing. And the only way you do that in the type of business they're in is to engage in these practices that people find deplorable. That was very well put. You write how platform owners and investors benefit from a form of rentier relations with users. And we've also seen folks liken the relationship between platform and user to a kind of digital feudalism. Why do these metaphors make sense even with platforms where money or services aren't necessarily changing hands? So the traditional model for advertising platforms like Facebook and Google 
is one that I think most people are familiar with, right? It's this data to advertising products pipeline where you use a digital service for free. So like Facebook or Gmail or whatever. And in exchange, you basically give away your rights to your personal data. And the company is able to collect all that, to analyze it and sell it to third parties as advertising products. Money isn't changing hands between users in the platform, but it's certainly changing hands between advertisers and platform. And so the rentier element of this is that the platforms start to benefit more from having rather than doing. You have something and you're you're charging for access rather than like producing some kind of good or selling a service. So they don't sell you a product as much as they like act as a gatekeeper and monetize the information they learn about you. And it, it is, I guess, important to note that they're doing this at an aggregate level. So they don't care that I'm James Muldoon and I live at such and such address and and have this personal mobile number. They care that I'm like a 30-something-year-old white male who owns mini Daxons and plays board games because that's the kind of categories (laughs) that I would fall into, you know, and that's how they're going to advertise all of their sweet little Daxon merchandise to which I'm probably going to be quite susceptible. Like that's where the money is. Some people call it digital feudalism. I don't know enough about feudalism to really say the extent to which, you know, we're actually like digital serfs or peasants there. I think there's probably a lot more going on there. Um, But I think this model, so let's call it the advertising platform model, um, this in itself is, I think, going to quickly change and, and eventually become replaced by something slightly different. So in the book, I say that global platforms often have these world building ambitions, They want to own digital worlds which have their own functioning digital economies inside them because what's really profitable to have these digital worlds is that you can exponentially increase the opportunities for you to monetize interactions that are happening inside your world. If all you can do is is basically sell advertising products, you've only got one revenue stream. And if you look at a company like Facebook, you know, in 2020, I, I think that like 97% of its profit came from advertising. And so expanding this and trying to create much broader digital worlds really gives you these multiple different revenue streams that you might be able to use. So it's not just about selling like consumer products or selling advertising. It's about owning an entire digital environment where people can hang out, they can interact, they might play games, they can like create things, they might be able to sell things to each other. Because when you own that world, when you when you are kind of underneath everything, you can profit from everything that takes place, right? So you can create an entire ecosystem and an, an entire economy that takes place on the platform. And you can just start taking cuts on everything, right? So you could sell your own merch, and I'm sure that's one revenue stream, but you can just start taking a 10% cut whenever money changes hands, whenever anyone sells one item uh, to another person, whenever anyone wants to do anything, you just take a little cut. And I think that's why to the next generation of venture capitalists, things like digital tokens and cryptocurrency is so appealing because suddenly everyone is investing in the platforms. You don't have a free service anymore. You're paying for everything. Everything is monetized. Everything is tokenized. Um, I think that's the real dream to create these online worlds in which we're all going to have 
um, all our interactions commodified in that way. You mean the real dream on the part of, say, like the people who are building the metaverse or like... Well, yeah, I think it's the, it's the dream of people who are building metaverse, but it's also the dream of a lot of the people that are building various Web3 products, at least those that are coming from it from a more venture capitalist angle. I think there's actually a, a large overlap in the extent to which both groups of people are really in it for the, the further monetization of the internet. As you point out in the book, these for-profit platforms often couch their activities in this language of community and democracy and even kind of grassroots political organizing. How did that rhetoric come to be such a Silicon Valley trope? And more specifically, can you walk us through how Facebook and Airbnb have harnessed that kind of rhetorical strategy and the disconnect between that and uh, what's actually going on? Yeah, I really loved the uh, chapters on Facebook and especially Airbnb. It was trippy. Let's start from this, you know, statement made by Brian Chesky, who's the CEO of Airbnb. He says that the community is our product, right? This is from a CEO who for several years in the 2010s renamed his position in the company as CEO and head of community. That's how important this whole concept was to him. And one of the stories I tell in the book is how from about 2015 onwards, right, a lot of these companies started to pitch themselves as global community builders. And it was really around the kind of Trump election and these new divisions that started emerging in politics where people started to, to look at the world more in terms of like open and closed societies, that the left traditional left-right distinction was becoming a little bit blurred. And it was around this time that the tech lash was happening as well, right? It's kind of post-Edward Snowden post some of the revelations about tech's role in, you know, global security coming out. And the big tech companies wanted to get ahead of this and they wanted to start a new story. I talk about this idea of community washing. It's a marketing strategy where you frame your business through the language of community empowerment, that you're suddenly not a kind of multi-billion dollar corporation you're like a, a community group fulfilling a social mission you're really there just to to do a good job and and to help make the world a better place and any profits that come are kind of just a nice little benefit on the side the reality on the other hand is that the infrastructure that these companies are designing and creating uh, is meant to be as extractive as possible right so they're actively feeding off the activity of the communities and, and at the same time basically deploying this language to make out like they're just one of the guys trying to figure things out. And I think it's just an entirely cynical PR campaign. And in the book, I kind of show the, the ways in which this seeps into the, the tech world, really from like the Obama era of the way in which community organizing started to be used by political campaigns this notion that we you know could all work together as a community and we would achieve some kind of goal now in the old community organizing tradition this is about empowering local communities against neglectful governments essentially 
Um, but in the tech story, it's about any kind of community coming together to achieve any corporate goal that the company wants to put forward. Now, the reason why I think it's entirely cynical is that these PR stories are developed years after the founding of the company, right? They're post hoc rationalizations to really give the company a more polished image. And what's really noticeable in the case of both Facebook and Airbnb is that these stories are coming out precisely when they start facing a tech lash, precisely when people start questioning what they're doing. They're like, oh, actually, we've got this social mission and we're going to build global community and we're on the side of openness and we're on the side of people coming together. And I think it, it also helps them basically have this defensive move where whenever they get something wrong, they can just be like, oh, we're just going to go back to the community and try and sort it out, right? That they're the community leaders and that they're going to just have a big think about it and, you know, treating everything as like a design challenge rather than what is often the case, which is a genuine conflict of interest between the shareholders and the communities they're, they're trying to extract wealth from. And also there are conflicts that play out between these companies and regulators or local governments, which I also found really interesting, where they will actually, especially in the case of Airbnb, they will leverage the strategies of grassroots organizing, the rhetoric of grassroots, specifically Obama era organizing to get communities to go up to bat against the public. Yeah, it's a real kind of twist on what you imagine as like a democratic movement, right? Because Airbnb and a lot of these companies pitch themselves as like, oh, we're democratizing X. We're going to democratize housing. We're going to allow anyone who owns a house to rent it out. But when they come up against genuine democratic governments that have been elected through real elections, you often see that it's really just this very small subsection of the population, in the case of Airbnb, this group of like micro entrepreneurs who are leveraging their assets in order to rent them out, who are often causing a lot of problems with gentrification and, and too many tourists um, that are kind of pitted against democratic elected officials that often just trying to, to preserve neighborhoods that are trying to protect the communities who've lived there for, for so long. And then you see kind of over time, the landscape of these cities starts transforming as a result of all of this. And you get massive housing shortages, people not being able to find homes because so many homes are being rented out as Airbnbs. Exactly. I mean, in some European cities, in like the central kind of touristy areas, more than 50% of houses on the Airbnb website are being let out by professional short rental accommodation uh, services. The image that Airbnb wants you to believe is like a mum and pop renting out a spare room. But there are, there are companies and there are businesses on these sites that literally have, you know, tens or hundreds of, of properties. And it's essentially creating this glut in the market where there isn't enough long-term housing available for people who genuinely need it. Because the platform and the way in which they have evaded regulation and undermined local governments and municipalities that have attempted to tax them or put limits on how, you know, often people can rent out houses... It's a really huge issue because there is enough long-term housing and there's just this huge market now for this very profitable short-term housing, which is having really disastrous effects. 
I'm curious, given everything you've laid out, what are some of the most common mainstream proposals you see for curbing the power of these platforms or curbing the damage that they are doing? And why do you think that those proposals are not enough? So I think the main issue with the dominant criticisms that we see of big tech is that they tend to fall into one of two categories. You either hear from a kind of tech humanist angle or an anti-monopoly agenda. And the first one you would have seen in like that Netflix show, The Social Dilemma, right, where we have this argument that tech companies are controlling us, that we can't make choices anymore because we're just being nudged and incentivized and pushed around and we're like rats in a cage. And so when Tristan Harris was on that show, you know, Shoshana Zuboff has a lot of this in her work on surveillance capitalism, and we're basically just these automatons. And I think the problem here is that the solutions that these people end up offering often have, you know, more to do with like consumers making better individual choices than with any of the underlying structural reasons why these companies are able to to act like this in the first place. And so we kind of lose the political economy dimension of the problems. Um, and it ends up just being about, oh, you just need to log off Facebook more or the CEOs need to act more ethically in how they design their products. And I don't think that's the primary framing we should be using in understanding this. Now, the second way in which we often talk about this is through the lens of antitrust discourse or an anti-monopoly agenda. And I think back to Elizabeth Warren's 2019 campaign about breaking up big tech and to all of the energy that's now behind um, the antitrust agenda in the US in particular, where it's this real kind of revival of using these tools as a way of challenging some of the power of the big tech companies. Now, I think companies do genuinely need better regulation, but the problem is if we did break up some of these big conglomerates, many of them would be forced to operate in a very similar manner due to the competition they face in the sector, right? It's also not immediately apparent that breaking up something like a social network into like Midwestern Facebook and Eastern Facebook and whatever, that's actually going to be helpful for anyone. It's not like the oil companies or the telecommunications companies where you can meaningfully kind of divide them up in order to improve competition in the sector. But I think if you are interested in genuinely progressive alternatives and solutions to this problem, increasing competition and further marketizing things is not the answer. Part of the book is about trying to put forward non-market-based alternatives where we're starting to see digital services as you know, a public good, as something that we should try to make available to everyone and that we can find more commons-based ways of, of, of funding and delivering these kinds of services that don't just ultimately rely on tokenizing everything and kind of leaving everything to the whims of the marketplace. Can you tell us about maybe one or two successful examples of private companies being turned into public utilities or things like this happening outside of tech? So the public utilities discourse is an interesting one because I think that it's quite useful as a a kind of lens through which we can view these questions. But I also think we need to go a bit further still. So I think, you know, it's important for people to have access to basic services. 
So it would be good, of course, if public authorities were able to offer things like free broadband or or other digital tools. But I don't think we should limit ourselves just to these kinds of services. I mean, the whole idea of a public utility is that it's considered essential, that it's some kind of service you couldn't do without, right? And that's part Mm -hmm. of the justification for, for why it should be regulated in a specific way. But I think all forms of of digital production should be owned and operated by the communities that use them, right? That's why the book is called Platform Socialism, that we shouldn't leave these kinds of things in the hands of of billionaire investors, that we should have some kind of social ownership, that the communities that use them, and I think one of the things I say in the book is that, look, we can have a variety of different models, right? We can have an ecosystem of different types of communities owning different types of platforms. It doesn't have to be the government owning everything. It can be cooperatives. It can be kind of local municipal services that we need to find ways in which these can be operated as public goods. And so if we think of like the knowledge economy, for example, Let's think about Wikipedia. You know, it's not a marketized good. People don't need to buy in with tokens to have access to this kind of knowledge. They don't have to wade through a sea of advertising to use the service. The idea is that it's a not-for-profit foundation, that it's offering an incredibly important good to the world, and that people can use it free at the point of use. And so I think this is really important to think about how this kind of a model could operate in different areas as well. So we might think of like cooperatives running local services, like a little food delivery service or a domestic cleaning service or something like that. In London, where I live, um, I'm involved with a food delivery cooperative called Wings, which is a, a more ethical alternative to Uber Eats, where the workers all have a share in how the service operates and, and the value that it creates. In America, you can think of something like Up and Go, which is like a a domestic cleaning platform in New York. And there are hundreds of these platform cooperatives operating in different places around the world. There are also municipal authorities that are running various kinds of digital services and incubators. So there's a lot going on there, but I think we need to think more about providing resources and support to these kinds of services and trying to think about how we can scale them up. Because at the moment, a lot of them operate on a very small scale and they cater to very small markets in comparison to the much larger um, corporate platforms. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I, so I work in public media for my day job and in, in contrast to, you know, working for a newspaper or digital media company, it's the first time that I've ever felt not beholden to advertisers and not feeling some kind of pressure from capitalism, really. And if you think about it, like public media is kind of a utility, right? But of course, it's constantly shrinking. Yeah, we absolutely need to to defend these kinds of public goods and, and to the extent to which they, they still exist. And it's absolutely shocking here in the United Kingdom that um, the BBC, the, the public broadcasting corporation that, that operates here, is now under threat. The government is thinking of getting rid of their license and gradually reducing the amount of revenue that's available to them. The BBC is not a perfect institution, but we'll miss it if it's gone. Public media is absolutely something that we need to defend and to protect is a really, you know, valuable thing that we have. Yeah, it's been kind of illuminating. Like I actually feel beholden to the community that we serve. 
it's almost a positive feedback cycle in that way. Like we're actually supporting each other. And this is, there's not sort of this existential question of like, well, why do we even have magazines? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I want to, for our listeners who are not journalists and don't understand like the dynamics of the financial models of journalism, you can contrast this to working for a for-profit publication, some some of which have uh, robust enough readerships that they can derive a large amount of their revenue from subscriptions. But for the most part, what you're actually doing all day is trying to create content that will perform well on, you know, the major social media platforms or like hack into their algorithm in some way. That's a side note. And we talk about it on other episodes, but the ways that these platforms impact media and the day-to-day of being a journalist is very mind-boggling and insane and complex. So James, can you sketch out some examples for us of what turning a major for-profit platform like Facebook or Uber into a public utility might look like? Yeah, well, let me discuss one idea I, I raise in the book, um, and that is, well, what does a democratic Uber look like? What does a more public version of a ride-hail platform look like? And I think I talked before about the different scales and the different levels that platforms could and should be operated on. And I think when you have something like a ride-hail platform, because of the investment that you have to make in the infrastructure and the cost of running a service like that, it's quite difficult for a very small workers' cooperative to be able to do it. So I think it would be most suitable to operate this as a municipally owned service. So as I said before, I live in London and I sketched the example, a kind of hypothetical example of you know, a service called Ride London. And this is like an on-demand service that is administered by the public authority Transport for London, which, you know, TFL as it's known here. Um, And this runs out of the mayor's office. And the advantage here uh, in trying to organize this service in such a way is that you can integrate the on-demand ride house service within the existing public transport option. So when you bring the TFL app up and you like want to know how to get somewhere, You can have this as one of the options um, and it can take advantage of the existing data and knowledge about mobility that the service already has. And you can design the software not to like gamify it to try and like keep workers on the road as long as possible and to make it as exploitative as you can, but to put their needs front and center so that drivers can understand what data is being collected, what data is being used. And that drivers, you know, receive a living wage. They're not exploited for pennies. They get a regular salary. They get benefits. They get all the things that we should expect to receive from our workplace. We also want something like this to be able to nudge people towards more environmentally friendly options. Because Uber has just been a disaster in terms of the increase in in single occupancy cars on the road and the amount of, you know, pollution that's going into the environment. It would be good. I mean, ideally, we would have better public transport options, right? Because we don't want people traveling around by themselves in empty cars. We want really efficient and well-funded public transport that people can use. And, you know, in London, we're actually lucky enough to have like a pretty great public transport system. And so it's really easy to imagine how 
uh, something like Ride London could actually work because TfL has a huge budget. They deliver a really efficient service. There are other cities around the world, many, of course, that don't have such good public transport options. I think we need to be fighting for these services to be improved. Um, I think it's possible to run, and there are actually existing workers' cooperatives who are running ride-hail services. One prominent example were, were those that sprung up in, in Austin, Texas, for the brief period in which the, the corporate platforms got booted out, or rather left voluntarily because they didn't want to face new kinds of regulations. But they soon returned because they, they challenged that in the state legislature and, and they won just like the tech companies have challenged the gig worker laws in California. But at the same time, it's very possible to have this kind of municipally owned model. It's possible to have good conditions for workers to be able to try and push towards more environmentally friendly parts of the service. Um, and I think this would be you know, a really beneficial way of, of thinking about how such a platform could be transformed to serve the public good. Yeah, it's been interesting in California, especially watching the fight between tech companies and Uber and various pieces of legislation that have come up to ostensibly help protect the workers and the public. And then you see these companies, again, harnessing that community rhetoric to the point where then, you know, when these do come up for a vote, they don't pass because they've been, I don't want to say brainwashed, but the community rhetoric has like seeped into work against what's actually going to benefit them. Yeah, and it's it's not just the rhetoric, right? The the Uber and and their consortium spent ten times the amount on that campaign in California for that vote than the public authorities and the community groups good, right? It was like ten ten million versus you know ten times that amount, and so it's not surprising that they won like fifty nine percent of the vote or whatever the exact figure was. Yeah, incredible case of like manipulating a democratic vote and why you should have greater funding and spending regulations around these kinds of things because otherwise money just buys you decisions and i think once it was successful there in in california the ride hail companies are starting to try and replicate that in all the states across the u.s i think there's more than 20 states that have this opportunity for initiating referendum and so it's just a terrible precedent that's been set, basically. Yeah, I feel like especially here in Los Angeles, it's sort of the epicenter of what the actual chokehold of a platform can now look like. So how might users benefit from turning um, these for-profit platforms into public utilities in a way that they're not benefiting from them now? Because we often talk about the workers, but then, of course, there is the user side. Yeah, platforms that have some kind of social ownership over them promise to give value back to users just as much as they give to workers. So we can start to look at various types of multi-stakeholder forms of governance where different groups of people are given a say in how the platform operates because obviously we don't want to turn Google over just to its employees, right? Because it's a service that everyone uses. It's a service that is relied upon by billions of people around the world. We need to start finding ways to allow users to have some say in how these services operate. So at a local level, you can see that this is very achievable in an immediate sense. If there is a ride hail service that services like one particular community or one part of a city, you know, if you're using that service, you can have some kind of a stake in what's going on. You might have invested some money in the cooperative or you might have 
um, helped to fund or develop the service. And developing these governance structures that allow different types of communities to have a say in that, I think is really important. And I think that element of control, that element of a sense that you have a stake in, in what's going on, that's super important to thinking about uh, how a new generation of platforms might might be able to work. But it also might redistribute value more meaningfully, right? Because one of the things we've been discussing today is that platforms often have a very extractive business model. The idea is that they're going to take value from users and really just try and hoard a lot of the profits that get um, made by people using the platform. If we're talking about like the creator economy, for example, people who are producing writing, who are doing drawings, who are producing all kinds of culture on on platforms, you'd want to see these people getting a much, much greater cut in the value that was produced, that it wouldn't be a, a matter of essentially creating a stranglehold on the market, that if you're producing videos, there's nowhere else you can go aside from a few smaller options than something like YouTube. We'd want to see a more diverse ecosystem of possibilities that have a lot more user-owned platforms and, and things that are giving value and control back to those who are using them. That's it for the free version of this episode. We get into lots more good stuff with James, like whether democratizing platforms could help address the spread of misinformation and the possibilities and pitfalls of crypto in this space. You can get all the goods, including our monthly newsletter of Culture Rex, by subscribing for just five bucks a month at theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you want to check out James's book, which we strongly recommend you do, our listeners can grab a copy for 30% off over on the Pluto Press website. Just use the code MULDOON30. That's our show. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. For more on platform socialism and James's work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a share or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help support independent journalism.